Hello there. Welcome to the podcast, The Day in Sports, T-D-I-S underscore humblebrag. Hopefully that is buried into your head uh, because repetition is the best form of learning. Really excited to be on the podcast today. Ben Sherman camping, not with us today. He'll be back with us on Saturday for an emergency podcast where he uh, will officially bring Sexy back to the show. Um, so we're at like maybe 20, 25% Sexy right now. So we'll get back on top and uh, in our rightful place once Ben Sherman gets back. But I will be able to take you through sports, um, you know, just not in as uh, as sexual a manner. But I wanted to get into a number of things. First thing I want to talk about, though, today is expectations. Expectations that we have of our sports teams, how, you know, how they should perform, and more importantly, time frames if your team is rebuilding. What what's a reasonable time frame for us to expect? What should we expect? And I want to talk about how often we get that wrong and the rush that the media and fans create and the pressure that we put on our favorite franchises oftentimes puts them in a position where they make decisions that they wouldn't otherwise to meet the best interest of their fans instead of the financial, uh, more intelligent, long-term decisions that might meet the best needs of the franchise in terms of building for the future. So. Uh, I was looking at, at uh, teams kind of across across the sports spectrum, and I looked at, right now, the Steelers, the Patriots, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Yankees, even the Red Wings, although I don't know much about hockey. All those franchises are, are the iconic kind of star franchises in their respective leagues or, or high up there in their respective leagues, and all the franchises I just named are really aging right now. They're they're in some, some trouble. Uh, uh, Pittsburgh 0-2. Seemingly not a lot of weapons. The Patriots are 2-0, but you couldn't have an uglier 2-0, and they clearly have problems in terms of injuries, youth at the wrong positions, and, and putting way too much on Tom Brady. The Lakers have a 40-year-old Steve Nash, a 35-year-old Kobe Bryant coming off an Achilles tear, a 33- or 4-year-old Pau Gasol as the center of their team. The Yankees are paying almost 40-year-old Derek Jeter $17 million a year, A-Rod, 30 million a year, 25 million a year, so they've certainly got their issues. And the Red Wings have been aging for a long time now, unable to sort of replace the talent. And then on the flip side, you look at the long-suffering franchises like uh, the Clippers, the Seahawks, Pittsburgh Pirates, the Cincinnati Bengals. They're now competing. They now have the young talent. They're on the uptick. And that's what you got to love about sports is this is a generational process. As good as New England or Pittsburgh or the Yankees or the Lakers seem, for 10 to 15 run stretches, there's still luck involved, no matter how much money any of those markets have, no matter how much money Time Warner Cable pays the Lakers, you still got to convince people to come. you got to convince Dwight Howard to stay or LeBron James to come in next year or Carmelo Anthony, and that's not a given. So all the people out there that are saying all the big markets have all the great players and this inherent huge advantage, that's not always necessarily true. The other thing we need to look at is what's a realistic time to rebuild a franchise, and, it, and it might, it's going to be different for different sports. Uh, in the NBA, I've got a piece that's going to be coming up on the blog. It's not going to take that late, the, the Lakers that long to rebuild if they do it correctly, if they do it smartly, because next year they've got, uh, and I'll get into complete detail uh, in this on the, on the actual blog post, but after this coming season, the Lakers only have Steve Nash on their books. He costs $9 million. He could retire which would take that $9 million completely off the books, or they could use what's called the stretch provision, where they stretch that $9 million over the course of three years, lowering the cap hit, 
to $3 million a year, providing more initial flexibility, and then that, in, in effect, releases Nash. And so those are some of the, the, the ways the Lakers could go uh, in order to right the ship, but it's going to take some time. Uh, I listen to ESPN a lot with uh, uh, Steve Mason and John Ireland, and, and just hearing the call-in, by the way, those guys are great, but hearing hearing callers from the L.A. market saying, you know, things like, we, we brought in Wesley Johnson, we brought in Nick Young and Jordan Farmar, we're going to be younger, more talented, deeper. Um, the Lakers might be more talented, might be deeper and younger, but you're not more talented when you replace, replace Dwight Howard with Jordan Farmar, who was playing overseas, Nick Young, to a minimum contract, and Wesley Johnson, who could hardly get a job offer. So it's unrealistic for Lakers fans uh, to, to, to think this is the year. We're going to flip it around. Kobe will be back in six months from an Achilles tear at age 35. What I would advise is, is the two-year plan, and you'll see that again coming up on the blog. Let the books clear. Pursue who you want to pursue in free agency. The Lakers will be able to go after whoever they want. Even if they can't get a marquee guy, they can bring in three, four, five good young pieces to complement Bryant and Gasol uh, if they're able to re-sign those two guys and still build a really strong core. But patience is going to be the key. You look at uh, uh, Steel the Steelers or New England, right now they have the quarterback, which is the most important part, but they've paid those quarterbacks, Brady and Roethlisberger, so much that it tends to dilute the rest of the roster. And then as Brady and Roethlisberger start to decline, which inevitably is happening, Brady is 37, Roethlisberger's past 30 and been banged up as much as any quarterback in the league. So when those things happen and the rest of the roster talent isn't there, you're going to see a decline. And it might take longer in football because instead of 10, 8 to 10 players in the NBA impacting the league, or impacting a specific team, you've got 53 guys that need to make an impact on special teams, defense, and offense for a football team. So even if you have a Roethlisberger, you have a Brady, you have a Belichick, and you have a Tomlin, two guys I, I, I respect a huge amount, those two guys are, are real nice items, but they're only two items at the grocery store, and you need 53. You can't make a whole meal with just vanilla extract, even though it's really nice. You know, adds that little zing to the cookies. But you got to have the flour, and the sugar, and the butter. And right now, the Steelers and the Patriots don't have all those ingredients. It's easier to add those ingredients in the NBA, and maybe even baseball, bringing in a marquee pitcher, a middle-of-the-order hitter like a Prince Fielder, things like that. So I, I just think NBA, given your cap situation, you've got to give your team a minimum two, three years to rebuild. NFL might be a longer process. It could be three to five years to rebuild. If you look at my team, the 49ers, to build to back to where they are right now from abject failure to championship contention, took three or four coaches, uh, um, Dennis Erickson, Mike Nolan, Mike Singletary, a couple of, of pantsing episodes in the locker room, 10 years of losing records. It, it took a lot of pain and suffering to get San Francisco under the right leadership, Jim Harbaugh, Trent Falke, drafting the right players, Anthony Davis, Ayupati, Alden Smith, Ray McDonald, uh, bringing in the right free agents, Carlos Rogers, Dante Whitner. Uh, Ahmad Brooks, things like that. So personnel decisions can be correct and not work out. They can be incorrect and work out better than you expected. So you need to give time for error. But eventually, talent in the front office, management, coaching, and at the top of your organization is what's going to make the difference. And those types of talents that can build teams, build franchises, don't grow on trees. You have to be patient. You don't always strike while the iron is hot. you got to strike while the iron is hot. 
and there's something good to iron. You know, you've got a nice pressed shirt ready to go, um, like a Jim Harbaugh uh, or like a Nick Saban if he becomes available. So my advice to suffering franchises, and I know it's easier said than done, believe me, as a 49er fan over the last 10 to 15 years, it's been difficult. Have some patience. Oakland Raiders fans, New York Jets fans, Boston Celtics fans who are going to be going through a rebuild. Have some patience. Invest in management, coaching, smart people, analytics. Be ahead of the curve. Get young talent. And, and that'll be a path. Don't over-rely on the superstar. Don't overpay for the superstar as much as possible. Make sure that you're providing market value to, to your assets and that you're getting market value return from those assets. And it takes time. It takes practice. It takes intelligence. And it takes the right people on the same page to, uh, to accomplish that. Last week, we started a, a, a little ditty, a little segment called our Power 7, uh, which is our Power 7 NFL teams in the league. And the criterion is we're looking at, at the top seven teams we think can compete for a championship. Uh, so not the seven teams that project uh, or that are the best right now, but, but the seven teams that are a combination of they're showing us something on the field right now, and we think that is going to translate into success later in the season. So the seven rosters, teams, coaching staffs all put together that we like the most. Uh, and Ben will have his, maybe that will play on Saturday. But I'll give you mine right now. The top seven teams in the NFL uh, in order in terms of who's the best, most likely Super Bowl championship contender. Uh, number one on my list, I have to go Seattle Seahawks. As much as it pains me uh, as a San Francisco 49er diehard fan, they've whooped us a combined 71 or 72 to 16 in the last two games in Seattle. Yes, they broke a world record for noise and decibel level in uh, at Quest Field during that San Francisco-Seattle uh, matchup, so incredibly difficult place to play. I understand that. Um, the home field is probably worth 10 or 15 points once things start to go wrong because the weird voodoo kicks in. The 49ers start fumbling. They can't communicate. Panic sets in. You're trying to throw the ball to catch up, so I throw some of that result out, but you really can't dismiss a 29-3 spanking. It's loud for the Seahawks in there, too. Uh, it's loud for their defense to get calls out while the 49er offense is on the field. So it's something everyone has to adjust to. And San Francisco is in that division. They should know what it's like there, what it takes to win there. And I honestly think bottom line is Seattle can't be beat at home. I don't think you beat them in the regular season at home. I think they're going to take uh, an 8-0 record at home into the playoffs. And if they have home field throughout the playoffs, uh, I think they're going to be your Super Bowl representative. I can't see anyone in the NFC uh, going there and and winning. Maybe if the Packers go there and Aaron Rodgers plays out of his mind, but it's so hard to do with that with that defense and that crowd noise and the best secondary in the league. So if Seattle goes eight and whole, eight and zero, excuse me, eight and zero at home, and on the road they're already one and zero beating the Panthers. Let's say they split and go four and four on the road. That's twelve wins probably at least enough for a first-round bye, if not home field throughout. So you could be looking at having to play at Quest Field in Seattle at least up into and maybe through the NFC Championship, and then Seattle getting a neutral field uh, uh, New York Super Bowl, which would probably, even if it's cold weather snowing, lend itself very well to their style of play. Now, number two on my list probably isn't real happy that the Super Bowl is outside uh, in New York City for the upcoming year. The Denver Broncos, as a more finesse passing precision team, um, I'm sure would love 
to play in the Georgia Dome or in New Orleans or in Florida where the weather's going to be good. You might be able to be inside or in a dome, climate controlled. And I think in that scenario, Denver's the best team. I think if you put Seattle and Denver, uh, you know, in the Super Bowl in, say, Houston, and you're in a dome and most of the crowd is corporate and doesn't have a rooting interest on either side, so it's not real loud in there, and it just comes down to execution, Peyton Manning, Wes Welker, Demarius Thomas, Eric Decker, Noshan Moreno, Monte Ball, uh, Julius Thomas is going to be too much for even that Seattle defense. And if Peyton Manning gets to another Super Bowl, especially against a relatively inexperienced team in Seattle, I can't see him coming up short. That would be in a controlled environment. Get, if it's in New York, uh, or when it's in New York, and if Denver meets Seattle there, and it's raining or snowing or 10 degrees or whatever it might be, I'd give a strong edge to Seattle because the running games and defenses will prevail, and certainly Seattle has the edge in those areas. Uh, number three, I'll put the 49ers. Um, I still believe a lot in their defense. Uh, Colin Kaepernick had a really bad game after having the best game of his career. I don't think that's a sign of, boy, this guy's really up and down. I think that's a sign of it's damn hard to play in Seattle against the team that knows you inside and out. And, uh, you know, the secondary is probably the best in the league. That, that said, the whole team didn't play well. I'm worried about Frank Gore. He doesn't seem to have the burst, although I say that at the beginning of every year. And then he ends up with 1,200 yards. But Kendall Hunter needs to get back in the lineup as soon as Michael James is healthy again. Uh, that'll be a big boost to the 49ers. And then Mario Manningham, who I don't think is a world beater, but he's a good receiver, um, Super Bowl experience, played for, for the Giants, a team that, that doesn't back down from everyone. So I think Manningham brings that mentality to a San Francisco team that sometimes expects to be the bully on the block, and then when they meet a team like Seattle and they can't physically bully them, they they play to a physical draw, San Francisco gets thrown out of their game plan, and they're going to need experienced playmakers like Manningham who can make a great sideline catch, who can uh, uh, separate from coverage, who can make a play for Kaepernick when everything else is broken down and no one else is open. So San Francisco, again, my top three, you could shuffle them any way, but I can't put them any higher than number three after the devastating loss to, to Seattle. Number four, the Packers. The Pack looked back, guys. I wouldn't be too worried about them. Aaron Rodgers, 480 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. And even the week prior, what did he have, three touchdowns, one interception against the Niners. So this guy's been sharp. James Starks looks really good. Eddie Lacy banged up, but I think he'll be back. And um, maybe you're finally looking at a, at a running duo there. And then you've got James Jones, Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, uh, Jermichael Finley, along with Denver probably, and maybe Atlanta, the most talented receiving core, along with the best quarterback in the league. Following Green Bay, I like the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, I know Steven Jackson is dinged up. I think that he is going to be less relevant to their success than people maybe anticipate given the fact that he's a big name and and theoretically a big acquisition but i think he'll be back maybe giving him two to four weeks off isn't the worst thing in the world given the fact that he's a 30 year old running back he'll stay fresh he'll help them in short yardage situations he's a good receiving back he fits well with their offense julio jones matt ryan roddy white tony gonzalez solid offensive line Sean Weatherspoon, uh, their best linebacker, maybe their best defensive player out for the year, is going to hurt a lot. But I still trust this team to win seven or eight games at home and three or four on the road, come up with a 10 or 11 win season, at least a 10 win season. And now they've got that playoff experience. They very nearly beat San Francisco last year in the NFC title game. 
So I trust Atlanta to continue to win, to keep it on an even keel, and for Matt Ryan to kind of continue paralleling Peyton Manning's career as a great regular season player that needs to still find his way in the postseason. Uh, after the Falcons, I've got the Bengals. Uh, just triumphed over the Steelers in an ugly Monday night game, but I just like their roster. If you look at defensive line, Carlos Dunlap, DeMonte Pico, Geno Atkins is probably the best D-tackle in the league. And then behind them, Mal Lugo is a, a good player at, at linebacker, and Leon Hall, and Pac-Man Jones. And the, the, the defense can really play. And then offensively, uh, they're good on the offensive line with Whitworth and Andre Smith and, and Zeitler, the young guard. A.J. Green is, is second maybe to Calvin Johnson on the outside as a threat. Uh, I believe it's Andre Hawkins, Andrew Hawkins, or Andre Hawkins is a good slot receiver. He needs to get healthy. And you've got, in, in uh, you know, name a better, a, a name, a, a better two-headed monster than Gio Bernard and Ben Jarvis Green Ellis in the backfield. I know Ben Jarvis isn't the most uh, flashy guy, but he ran for some 12, 1,300 yards last year. Uh, you know, four, four point one yards carry, but that's fine. If you can find a guy that can be your bell cow, scratch out four yards of carry for you, and then compliment him with an electric young back like Bernard, you're doing exactly what you need to be doing in today's NFL, keeping both guys fresh, maintaining a solid ground game where you can grind the chains and move uh the the ball down the field while taking up time. And you also have the quick hitting Bernard that can get you a score uh from fifty yards out. Then you've got Eifert. Jermaine Gresham at tight end, and both, I think, right now are probably Pro Bowl-level pass catchers. Gresham is the more complete overall player, but I like the athleticism of both of those guys. I really think they have a chance to be every bit of what Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez were uh, moving forward, hopefully with less injuries and some better uh, decisions off the field. And then Andy Dalton is a guy that I like. He's solid. And Dalton seems to be the guy now that everyone thinks is now uh, holding this tremendously talented Bengals roster back. I'm not ready to say that. He's in his, what, third year now. I think he's accurate, got a relatively strong arm, smart. I think with the talent around him, he's not just a game manager. He's better than Alex Smith, uh, at least at this point in their respective careers. And I think he has higher upside. So um, I don't want to shovel on Andy Dalton yet. Let's see what he can do with this roster. He's made the playoffs every year of his career. So let's give him some time and, and see what he can prove. And then the last team, number seven in my power seven, um, is the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, you'll notice uh, if you were listening closely, which I'm sure you were, uh, last last time uh, on the podcast, I put the Patriots and the Texans uh, in my top seven. I moved them both out, even though the Texans won. It took them overtime to beat the Titans and New England. Barely beats the Jets, and, uh, you know, the Thursday games are always sloppy, but the Patriots have been sloppy both outings so far, and I just don't like their talent. So I'm going to put the Chiefs number seven. I think Alex Smith is really comfortable with Andy Reid. He gets to throw the ball a little bit more, make more decisions at the line of scrimmage. He's got good talent at Fasano and Dwayne Bowe and Jamal Charles, a good offensive line, really talented defense, and a really good home field advantage. So it's another one of those teams I think can go 7-1 and one at home, and win three games on the road, find their way to, you know, with a soft schedule to, to 10 wins in, in the playoffs. And I like their overall roster talent. Again, if you do the thing where you take the quarterback off and just leave the roster, I think the Chiefs are in that conversation for top 10, top 5 type roster talent. So that's my power seven. We're going to come back, go over 
what I did in the pick down last week, how I performed. Um, actually, let's get to that right now. I'll just tell you real briefly as, as you're waiting with bated breath for, for how I did in last week's pick down. But 11 and 5, Ben and Eric will tell you how they went uh, in next, next uh, on Saturday's podcast. But up from 9 and 7, so that makes us, let me do the quick mental math. We are 20 and 12. Uh, is that right? 11 and 5, 9 and 7. Yeah, 20 and 12 on the year. Not bad. Um, we're going to keep this train rolling, and we'll get everything right by then. So we're going to come back. I'm going to conclude with telling you about two of my least favorite types of guys, fans, people in the sports arena. to finish today by making a statement, a public service announcement, maybe, if you will, um, about a guy or girl, most likely a guy, and this is a guy I like to call the dumb know-it-all, and just stay with me and it'll make sense to you. It's the guy, uh, or girl, but like I said, most likely guy, that, especially in sports, wants to talk to you desperately about his knowledge, uh, or lack thereof. Uh, about anything sports-related, and he is really excited to share the knowledge. He wants to bend your ear. He wants to corner you in the office or at a party or wherever it may be and feed you the cliches that he has uh, adeptly learned from ESPN. So he's going to hit you with things like, boy, this has really turned into a passing league. He'll also do things like get get the number of regular season games wrong in casual conversation. Let's say he's a Patriots fan. He'll say, boy, you know, we went 11-3 and three last year, even though there's 16 regular season games. That right there, getting the amount of regular season games wrong or not being able to do what plus what equals 16 is a telltale sign of a guy that really doesn't watch the NFL because we're familiar with these numbers, 10-6, and 11-5, 12-4, 13-3, 9-7, 8-8. We know what it has to be. We know what the combinations have to be to equal 16. So if you're throwing out that your team went 10-4 and 4 last year on the regular season, please just stop talking for the rest of us and all of our benefit. And then there's uh, dumb know-it-all guy can also transition seamlessly into message board guy. And this is the guy that you go out and you read your article on your favorite team on uh, the Seahawks or the Niners or the Colts or the Cowboys or whoever it might be, and then you read through the article, it's a good article, and then it's always the first guy who's going to slam the guy that wrote the article and say, I could have done this, this, and this better. Of course, he doesn't provide an article. He just makes a comment and uh, you know throws stones from his glass house. And then you know, the next message board guy, let's say, is a 49er fan. He'll say, you know, the Seahawks beat us, but it was a complete fluke. You know, let's see them in our place, which is not true. They beat the San Francisco 49ers two times in a row, um, pretty convincingly. I don't care where they played. So not really a very valid point there. Or you'll get uh, rivalry message board guys that go on the board and specifically look for other people that they want to, like, drop expletives to over the Internet. 
and get their keyboard courage up and swear at either the writer who provides the article or somebody else commenting on the article. And I guess I don't have a larger point here. It just makes me put my face in my hands and think, what are we doing as sports fans? So message board guy and dumb know-it-all guy, they should get like scarlet letters, I think. Um, if you, we need to have like a, a sports tribunal. And if you're a dumb know-it-all guy, we'll put you on trial. I'll be the judge. And if in fact you are a dumb know-it-all guy, if you're feeding me knowledge that either everyone knows doesn't make sense or clearly was copied straightly straight from ESPN, uh, I'm going to have to paint uh, DKIA, dumb know-it-all, right on your chest. I may have to tattoo it on there. Uh, I know some tattoo artists that could work with me. And then if you are message board guy, I think what we should do instead of the scarlet letter is maybe just have a sign posted that you have to hang around your neck with your most ostentatious message board posts just so we know who you really are and we make you wear it in real life, right? Have some courage, message board guy. Display what you have to say to the entire world so that you can't hide behind the keyboard in your mom's basement as you drink Mountain Dew and eat Cool Ranch Doritos. Um, so that's it for my uh, Festivus airing of grievances for the day. And wanted to just do a quick podcast. I missed you guys. You're so, so lovely, so good looking, so trusting. And I feel so safe. You guys make me feel so comfortable. Sorry about that. Uh, Breaking Bad is wrapping up. I'm a little bit emotional. It's been uh, a weird week for me, but wanted to give you a quick and dirty podcast there. Gets, uh, get get you some results on, on my pick down from last week, my power seven for this week. Um, talk a little bit about aging, iconic franchises. So a little bit of everything here in the podcast. If you have topics, uh, articles that you want written, things you want covered, hit us up on Facebook, The Day in Sports. Hit us up on Twitter, T-D-I-S, the day in sports, underscore humblebrag, T-D-I-S, underscore humblebrag. Find us on Facebook or thedayinsports.com. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Me and Ben Sherman will be back with you on Friday. Until then, stay classy.